for January 2nd, 2017. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 444, Prairie and Her Home Companions. This is Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out and talking with each other, just shooting the breeze here in this new year. And tonight we're shooting the breeze about the O. A, the uh, Netflix series that got dropped with very little fanfare uh, a couple of weeks ago, and now you should have had time to watch. Uh, if, if your Facebook feed is anything like mine, despite the lack of marketing for this show, a lot of people have watched it, and we will be spoiling it. And, and that matters in this case. Uh, you know my thing. I think that a um, over-concern about spoilers is the enemy of real analysis and, and criticism and, and sometimes surprise and not knowing what's going on uh, is not key to your enjoyment. Uh, but I, I think you'll agree with me, panel, that uh, not knowing what's going on is key to your enjoyment of, <laughs> of the OA. And it is a state that will persist long after you've finished watching it. I'm your host, Matt Rather. Uh, I have with me an incredible panel up here in the abandoned house, uh, including one Ben Adams uh, with the first movement. Hello, Ben. Hello, Matt. Happy New Year. Uh, Happy New Year to you. And we have Pete Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hello, Matt. (laughs) Wow. You made me watch this, Matt. (laughs) I just, I could hear so much passive aggression in your voice in the way that you said, hello, Matt. That was an awesome. Matt, I am making a waffle and I am eating it, Matt. (laughs) Wow. OA jokes. The OA jokes have begun. Sorry, I'll back off. <laughs> uh, before we get to the OA, we start, as we always do, with the question of the week. Um, guys, 2016 was such a great year, and everyone, if your Facebook feed is anything like mine, people were all up and down talking about how sorry they were to see last year go. So uh, your question of the week, what is the thing that you're going to miss most about 2016, I should say, of the many things that you're going to miss about 2016, what is the thing that you're going to miss most? The thing that you are sorriest to let go? First in the alphabet, uh, drink, because it's not our friend Pete Fenzel. It's our friend Ben Adams. So I, I got got to spend uh, the holidays with uh, family, both Christmas and Thanksgiving, spent with uh, family members, and hopefully uh, many more opportunities in 2017 to spend with uh, those that I love. But there's one family from 2016 that I will not be able to see again and that I'm very sorry to see go. And I'm speaking, of course, of the lords and ladies of Downton Abbey. Oh! <laughs> I will miss Downton Abbey and all of the lovely characters that uh, the family that we got to spend so much time analyzing and talking about and, uh, you know, watching their, their, their affairs, their tawdry affairs go on. How will we spend the weekend? What is the weekend? <laughs> uh, I, want, I want to know what it was like to like get all the various innovations in the like the 30s and 40s. You know, right. what was it like when they first got a toaster or a hairdryer? Yeah, the the um, the sad finale, the unacknowledged finale of Downton Abbey is that the house is destroyed in the Blitz. 
they, it all it all just in World War II, the whole the whole estate and the village and everything. It's tragic. Uh the 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 loss of life and and uh, seems seems so pointless. The whole thing becomes like a shaggy dog story. Oh wait, no, I'm talking about the OA. Downton Abbey ended in a very satisfying way, I thought. <laughs> With totally. a, a spate of marriages. I don't know. You you you're going to and, miss and, the, we, sh- and yeah. we shall never see its like again. Yeah. Uh, Pete, what are you going to miss most about 2016? Well, I think that more than anything that existed fully throated in kind of full realization, there were certain feelings of possibility that 2016 seemed rife with. And one of them stands out to me because behind the scenes, I don't think I've actually mentioned it because long ago we made a promise to someday talk about this on the podcast and we will come around at some point. We will talk about this on the podcast, but for much of the last few months of 2016, I was engaged in a personal battle with the Netflix television series, Luke Cage. Uh, did you guys watch Luke Cage? I did. Yeah, and I like Luke. Here's here's what I'm gonna miss about 2016, which is that through about the first half, and I know Parrish in particular went into length on this on on the website for about the first half half of Luke Cage, it's awesome, right? It's like it's it's smart, it's it's got attitude, it's got historical and comic book like cachet. There's a lot of cool symbolism. There's a whole thing with the prison where he's in sort of the old power man thing going on. And then there's the the back end of Luke Cage was just a slog, and it took me forever to bother to get through it. Uh, I didn't think that Diamondback stepped up as a villain nearly to where uh, Cornell Stokes was uh, earlier on in the season as as the villain. And and I just it just there was just a, a just a collapse for me in my level of enjoyment of Luke Cage heading into the second half of the season. Uh, Overall, I would still recommend watching it, but I I really, really had trouble with the last few episodes. And I say the thing that I'll miss the most is that feeling I had during the prison escape scene in Luke Cage, you know, midway through the first season, where I was like, wow, you know, they they are taking this you know, third tier character and they're just they've elevated him. They've they've put him forward as this really cool symbol and this really cool storytelling device. And he has so much more depth of character than he did in Jessica Jones. And it just it seems like all things are possible. Uh, We can sidestep or get around any sorts of obstacles to effective storytelling. And that sense of possibility, which I felt in that part of Luke Cage, is something that was lost uh, I don't think I'll ever I don't, I don't think it'll I'll go my whole life without feeling that way again. But I think I may go my whole life without feeling that way again about Luke Cage. And that's shame. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Luke Cage as an object is uh, is lost for you forever. As, as an object of infinite possibility. Uh-huh. Right? Well, yeah, it, although I don't want to objectify him, even though he is a hunky, hunky, hunk of superhero right there. Well, so. that yeah, right. Absolutely. Just sort of radiates sex appeal uh, off of every pore of his body. But the. Yeah. Uh, isn't that the way with everything, though? With any like, like, part of life, like it starts out having infinite possibility. Like when you start a course, uh, say a, a college class, right? It was my favorite time of year of the semester, for example, because your schedule wasn't filled out yet. You could take literally anything. My favorite thing to do at the beginning of the semester was to walk up and down the aisles of the bookstore and sort of see all of the books that I could potentially read 
given different uh, different classes that I could take to see all the knowledge that I could accumulate in in the coming uh, two or three three or four months, right? And uh, as you as you buckle down in the slog, that always it always you know your possibilities always begin as kind of a funnel, like in in, in a great circle, and always narrow to uh, a point. So, do you feel like Luke Cage is unique in this respect? Well, to offer a counterexample, I, if anyone wants a really clear counterexample of kind of how that could potentially not work, I'd recommend going on Netflix and looking up the movie Super Fast, which is a parody of The Fast and The Furious, and uh, begin watching it, and you will realize uh, very, very quickly that, that there's no reason to watch it. Right, that it is that, that there is no expectation that it's going to be any good. That every expectation it's that is going to be uh, entirely terrible. Right, uh, and so this idea. I mean, I don't know. Uh, there's there's this feeling a lot of the time when you walk into something that oh it's full of infinite possibility but there's also the feeling sometimes when you walk into something where you're like I'm just in for a load of garbage, right? Uh, and I feel like Luke Cage earned. It wasn't even just that naive sense of like, oh, the world is predisposed towards blank slates being good things, right? The wilderness is is a happy place because you get to build a log cabin, not a nasty place because it has wolves in it, right? Uh, and so like uh, it, it was full of possibility in sort of the state of nature. But I'm saying it made it like halfway in and it kept building and building and building. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I think I think there's a lot of different dimensions to this question of sort of possibility and expectation. But yes, I suppose that to a degree, nothing gold can stay. Right. So Dawn goes down today. So Jessica Jones goes down to Daredevil. Right. Like that's kind of how it works. Wait, that's uh, the other way around, isn't it? That uh, that Daredevil came first and Jessica Jones came came second. And then the, the Bronze Age is uh, is Luke Cage. Uh, you know, but there's a problem with that trajectory because <laughs> Daredevil is <laughs> one of those shows where you turn it on and you're like, OK, that'll do, pig. That'll do. Right. Like, uh... <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to push on. The thing I'm going to miss from 2016 is facts and truth, uh, because I've been informed by so many reputable news outlets that. That I read and consume that that um, I, I don't read them and then consume them as though like as though I get the newspaper and read it and then tear it up into strips, soak it in, in water as though I'm making paper mache and then put it, you know, strip by agonizing strip into my mouth to chew. We're not talking about the OA yet, Matt. We're not talking <laughs> about the OA. <laughs> that was my favorite scene in the OA, by the way, it was when she did the crossword and then just tore it in small pieces and just made it into pancakes. That was great. I'm doing the. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I keep jumping ahead in the trajectory of of our show. It's like I'm going back and forth in time. It's like there's a kind of double lens flashback perspective in uh, in my own uh, in my own narrative of this. No, I I read a uh, I read a, an article in the New York Times this morning about how we are living in a post fact or post truth era, and I feel like I've read this think piece about half a dozen times in half a dozen more or less reputable media outlets. I mean, I wouldn't consume any less reputable media outlets. So in more reputable uh, media outlets, I'm going to miss verifiable facts. I'm going to miss the scientific method. I'm going to miss all the things that science provided us, including electricity, a high standard of living, automobiles, uh, you know, um, the, the television that allows us to watch Netflix shows. And as all that crumbles into uh, 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 Hobbesian war of all against all over the next several years, I'm going to remember a time when we could agree on uh, certain things like the sky being blue, the grass being green and 
uh, you know, I don't know, fluffy bunnies being adorable and, and cute. I'm going to miss facts in the post-fact era, but uh, I, I, for one, welcome our new rhetorical overlords. All right, let's uh, let's start in on the OA. Pete, um, I feel like Ben and I owe you an apology. <laughs> Go on. Because Ben and I, I well, I, sorry, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, Ben. I came across the OA organically. Uh, it it was promoted in the big the big promo spot on Netflix. You guys have that on your Netflix app, whatever whatever one you use, right? Like near the top, there's a big promo spot that they uh, push out whatever the big thing is that they're that they are um, marketing at the moment. Uh, and it was in that spot, and you know that spot has not let me down a whole lot. I've gotten a couple of really great stand up specials in that spot. I've seen some good movies. I've I've gotten into some good series that I might not otherwise have seen because they were in that that top uh you know it's called uh I guess in in layouts, web design layouts, it's called the hero image. And there's been a good hero uh promo on on Netflix a lot. And so I thought, oh the OA and so I start and I go and I, I think I did it in in uh, the first episode and then two sittings of binging after that. So I came by it organically and uh, there was a certain amount of inertia involved, especially in that second one where it was just like, okay, these are like these next two episodes are 30 and 40 minutes. We can get through this. Right. Um, ben, did you, did you watch it in, uh, in more or less the same way? I did. I, I had read an article about the interesting way they had, they kind of dropped it on the world. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's kind of a neat idea. I, I want to, I'm interested and I had also seen uh, a previous movie with Britt Marling in it. Uh, I think it was The Sound of My Voice. Uh, she, she's done two previous movies about kind of conspiracies and religious and nothing that has to do with the OA, of course. Uh, but it was pretty good, and I figured it was worth a shot. So I got a couple episodes in, and by then I was I was just too deep, man. I couldn't get out. Well, I, I have the same thing. I'm a completist, and even when there are manifest signs where something – it's clear that I shouldn't continue, right? Um, that it's uh, – I will continue no matter what. Also, it has Alec, uh, Alice Krieger, the Borg Queen, in it. Nothing – I mean oh, – that's who that is. Yes, she's the Borg Queen. Like nothing the Borg Queen does can be bad, right? Also, also Jason Isaacs. Yes. He's fantastic. Yeah. And he was in – there's a great show called Awake – that had a great payoff at the end of it. So I was like, surely Jason Isaacs knows what he's doing. Right. In signing on signing on to this thing. Well, there there are certain things about it, right? Like Britt Marling was part of the the uh creative team that, that created the show. It it's clear that she was making a vehicle for herself. And mm. and even that, like outside of the uh story, the like the diegetic uh aspects of the thing, I had to respect because, you know, I I appreciate uh the the sort of gumption and fortitude of people who can make something for themselves and kind of see it to see it to fruition too often actors are kind of at the mercy of i mean we praise actors who work who take the jobs that are available to them um because we like the people who are out there applying their trade but uh too often actors are at the mercy of whatever comes down the pipe and and you 
have to have a special kind of respect for someone who makes their own opportunity and who kind of creates a vehicle that is that is purpose built for them. So even outside of the uh, whatever was or wasn't going on in in the story, I felt like I had to appreciate it on on that level. And, you know, I, I thought Brit Marling as, as an actor did a creditable job in it. And so we, Ben and I had seen this and we said to Pete, have you seen the OA? Uh, we could do the podcast on it. Uh, Pete, why don't you pick up the story from there? Uh, what, ha- what happened? <laughs> <laughs> so I watched it. I sat down and I watched the first, well, I watched the first episode and I got to the scene where she wakes up in a panic after being uh, after attempted suicide, after being away from her home for seven years and she was blind and now she's not blind again. And she really, really needs the Wi-Fi password. Right. She's like, where's the Wi-Fi password? Oh, man, I've been there. Right. <laughs> and she finds out we find out later that the reason she needs the Wi-Fi password is she needs to watch a YouTube video that reminds her of a person that it existed and we don't want to go to the super deep spoilers yet, because I think one of the big questions about this show is sort of like, wh- how, what is the effect and what is the sort of uh, meaning baked into the order in which the information is presented to you, right? Because I feel like it has a profound effect on the watching of the show. But, but there's like a four-minute sequence, it feels that way, of her being like, I can't find the password to get on the Wi-Fi from my iMac, which has a wireless router for some reason, right? Like it doesn't just have an Ethernet cable, right? And uh, and, and and like and this is a, presented as a matter of like great importance in a show in which somebody has just sort of survived an almost certainly fatal fall from a bridge it's, and other sorts of miraculous things happen to him. It's shot like she's looking for like the codes to the nuke server before it, you know, with before the KGB storms in, you right. know, and catches our spy in progress. Like that's right. more or less the scene we're presented with, and not like a family Wi-Fi router. Yeah. Right. This, this is it's a Mission Impossible solution to a you know to visiting a friend's apartment problem. Yeah, right. and the which, OA, which is, by the way, the OA inspired me. Uh, my home is now uh, the the proud owner of a framed, uh, very nicely fonted uh, Wi-Fi password and router name. Uh, so I'd recommend you do that in your own home. It's a very nice way of welcoming guests. So, so my initial thought is, oh my god, I have to watch this, right? Like, I, like whereas you guys are like, oh, this is interesting, and you kind of get pulled along, and then you kind of watch the whole thing. I get like a few scenes in, and I get like a weird moment where I don't kind of like what's going on, and then it's like, oh my god, I have to watch all eight episodes of this, and I have to do it during my vacation, right? Which I took this the first week off of work in a long time, right? To uh, this this past week, and I was like, oh my god, this is terrible, and and I just got I just got angry, right? I just got I got I went through all sorts of emotions. I had what might be described as uh, what's the what she referred to it as perfect feeling. I expressed it with perfect feeling. Um, and I got through the place. I got through the third episode, which has the elaborate problem regarding a man with a potentially fatal tomato allergy who doesn't read food labels on vegetable stock, which is uh, and, and there's so many scenes like this throughout the OA that, that just boggle my mind. And, and I got to this scene, the scene. And you guys know the scene I'm talking about, of course. Right. The scene where uh, where Hap, right, is his name. Right. Is is using uh, Prairie as his blind woman servant and cook uh, and asks her to cook something of sort of sentimental importance, uh, which is this vegetable soup from her oligarchy and Russian father. And uh, and she does it. And I think he gets the ingredient list from her and goes to get the ingredients and like brings them back. Right. And then she cooks it and she tries to poison it. 
but he instead has an anaphylactic reaction to the tomatoes that he should have known were in the soup that he bought the ingredients to, right? I'm not sure if I tracked all the specifics, but all, all I did was I just posted that. I just posted that, like, that to Facebook. I posted that when somebody, you know, when your villain has a, t a tomato allergy and, like, doesn't read the food labels on his soup, right? Like, that's where I draw the line on suspension of disbelief. Like, at this point, I don't care about the fact that, oh, she's blind and now she can see it. She's jumping off bridges. Uh, but I'm like, wow, that's the part of the story that I can't believe. I didn't even identify the television show it was about. And I got like 30 likes, right? Like 30 other people who were like, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's absurd, right? Um, and I feel like the OA rubbed a lot of people the wrong way with these kinds of scenes, uh, which, of course, in retrospect, didn't matter because none of them, well, it's not that they didn't happen. It's that the stakes uh, were not, the stakes were not what you thought they were while it was happening. And there also was no foreshadowing or, or there was like, there was sort of like textual hinting, but there was not tonal hinting really uh, that what you were watching was of a different stake or level of reality than what you thought you were watching at a lot of these instances. Yeah, right. right? I, I mean, I had a similar sort of experience watching it in that like what you're talking about is a sort of disjunction there's a disjunction between uh, your kind of wished for or expected level of not having plot holes <laughs> right? right 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 and the the tolerance for plot holes now there may be a reason at the end that uh the plot holes exist it's not totally clear. I suppose we should talk about the end and, and uh, you know, spoiler alert, whether any of it was real, you know, is the, the main question that you're left with at the end of the thing. But I, like, I had a, a slightly different take on, on a similar thing. There were three or four stories going on simultaneously um they were being narrated in parallel though of course they they happened at different times uh different on different timelines um the and this is something that happens a lot in narrative right a story about someone sitting down and telling a story it happens in the odyssey it happens in the canterbury tales it happens in um it happens moby in moby dick it happens in harry potter a lot right like this is a common narrative technique and it's something that happens a lot in film as well with flashbacks or or things like this um and i'm a, a lot of my thinking about this i'm indebted i should give credit to amanda marcott uh who i saw talking about this on facebook um that uh the the two things that you sort of require um, of a flashback that's that's told like this or the kind of the narration, a character telling a story, a story within a story in something like the OA is that one, there are no details in the um, what's the opposite of the frame story, the inside story. There are no details in the inset story that the narrator could not know. One and two that everything that you are revealed, uh, that is revealed to you, the audience, in the inset story, is also revealed to the characters in the frame story. Now, both those, both those rules are broken in the LA <laughs> to, to, spectacular, uh, to spectacular effect. But beyond even that, right, it's a story of kind of a homecoming after a kidnapping or some sort of traumatic experience. Uh, it's a story of misfit high schoolers, uh, of like, uh, what is the, the principal say i fancy myself a uh a good high school anthropologist right it's a story about high school anthropology and um 
and fitting in uh, in a way that that has a, a sort of terrible, pathetic ending in the very last moments of the series. And then it's the story of the traumatic thing that happened, the um, the captivity of uh, Prairie by uh, the, by Hap and, you know, living underground in the, the glass cage. And that's uh, those three things thematically have nothing to do with one another. And that's the that's the main problem that that I had with it. Right. Like, was this a story about like breaking free from captivity or breaking free from the prison within? Was it a story about some kind of mystical dimension that we don't know uh, in the universe, some sort of greater freedom? Was it a story about families and healing and communication and relationships somehow? Was it a story about uh, uh, falling in love with Homer? Was that important somehow? Right? It, it had a kind of kitchen sink quality, and nothing seemed to hang together uh, thematically to me. So I, I would posit that this is a, a maybe a higher order ver- version or a, or a more abstract version, I should say, of the problem that you're talking about. That like you have not solved the basic issue with uh, a character with the plot hole that a character with a potentially fatal food allergy would get really really vigilant about reading ingredient labels especially with something like vegetable stock right 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 exactly and it which let me just let, me, let me abstract that problem one more level up because i think there's one more tension that that explains some of this problem which is the story has the tones of a lot of different kind of sci-fi and fantasy stories like that we're, we're given to believe right off the bat. And it was certainly marketed as a show that's going to have some big either sci-fi or kind of fantasy twist to it. And we sort of get there, but ultimately in, in this, in the service of making this kind of a mystery, did it happen or not? We're given fairly plausible mundane explanations of everything that happens and the, the tension, and that can be possible. You you can pull that sort of story off where there's both a mundane and a fantastical explanation for a lot of the events. But I think where the tension is, is ultimately the fantastical explanation we're given is basically nothing. We're given no real information about it. So it doesn't answer the question of, well, so what if it really happened or not? Uh, in the sense that if it had been aliens, let's say, that this, this, this story was about, it slowly revealed that aliens are involved in this plot. And then at the end, you have to ask, is it real or not? Then the tent, then the, the question is, are aliens real? Because then the world is totally different. Or is this just a crazy lady? Yeah. But as it was, is, is it real or not? I don't know. I don't care. Yeah. What uh, is it? Kind of what is it throughout? What is the difference? Whether exactly yeah, whether the, the it's real or not. Right. The, the difference between the two worlds is relatively small because ultimately the difference is sort of that there's a crazy guy out there that. Kidnaps people. And say what you will about the epistemological problems of the X Files. <laughs> a phrase you could only hear on the Overthinking It podcast. They actually make the case for those stakes pretty well. Is this aliens? Is this a shadowy conspiracy? At what level is the conspiracy happening? Like this the stakes of this are made are made pretty clear. And I think you're exactly right, Ben, that this isn't made clear uh in the OA. Over to you, Pete. What were you about to say? Oh yeah, I mean a lot, but the first thing I'll say <laughs> is there's a lot of stories that the OA calls forth, right? And I think that I would almost say that if I had enjoyed watching the show more and and I want to kind of put away just bashing the show because 
And and one of our listeners pointed this out last week. I, you know, well, why didn't you say anything bad about Rogue One? I don't come on the podcast just to say bad things about stuff. I want to figure out why people love things, and I want to figure out how to talk about the stuff in kind of an interesting way. And for wait, me, wait, wait, just wait, wait, why wait, it's wait. bad. Wait, 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 wait. The, the question, why didn't you guys – I mean, look, it belongs – the question, why didn't you guys say anything bad about Rogue One? Listen, the question, why didn't you guys say anything bad <laughs> about, all right, all right. <laughs> about Rogue One? That question belongs to the – uh, the genre of annoying podcast comments, which is, wait, why are you concerned with the things that concern you rather than the things that concern me? I wish okay, you were more okay. concerned with the things that that okay. concern concern me. But you know, listen, we come to bury Caesar, not to not to praise him. Easy, easy. No, but I, I know the. Um, what why did you thinking? have a different opinion of this film than I did, Pete? How dare you? How dare you? So there are things that I didn't like about the OA, but I also want to talk about why somebody might potentially like it. And I sort of tried to open my heart to that, which I had mentioned in some of our previous conversations involves me also coming to terms with why I didn't like it. Right. Um, one of those reasons is that I did feel like the entire piece had something of a theme of toxic masculinity and kind of the repudiation of toxic masculinity running through it. Right. Uh, as like a big, big fat theme. Right. And, and it extended, you know, to everything from Steve, the parkour dude, can't be in a relationship that is emotionally satisfying to him because women view him as this sort of like body. Right. As the, as a body, as an aggressor. And he's incapable of vulnerability and intimacy. Right. And like that's his problem. Right. And like uh, and then and then you also have the, the trans character, which to me is a big flag saying, like, we care about issues of gender identification in this story, even though we have not identified in the story which of the details we're talking about we care about more than any of the other details. Right. Um, so, like, there's that sense to it. But but the other sense is that you can go into the OA and you can start pulling out all the references and all the kind of resonances and you can start deconstructing it the way that you would deconstruct. Well, deconstruction is the wrong word. You can start hashing it out and close reading it the way that you would close read, say, prior to season five of Game of Thrones or Westworld, right? And you can come up with theories and explanations for what's happening. Um, and I can see the enjoyment in that. But for me, actually watching the show was not an enjoyable experience, right? Um, well, I, and it, I mean, I, wanna... I have to say I had the I had almost the opposite effect, the, the opposite experience, which was enjo I enjoyed watching the show in the moment a lot because it's a lot of elements of the show are done very well. The individual scenes are, many of them are compelling once you at least get past the, uh, the kind of silly plot details like the, the tomatoes or, or what have you. Uh, but it's very well executed. And then at the end, when I kind of thought about what I had just experienced, uh, I felt like it was like the end of a con. And I like looked down and realized my wallet's missing. <laughs> like, wait a minute. Yeah, it's wait a, a minute. You just stole six hours of my life. <laughs> right. It's like it's like eating at McDonald's or something, right? Like you just tear into that Big Mac and then 45 minutes later you're, you're clutching at your stomach, uh, you know, and, and sort of cursing your life. Um, I, I mean, Pete, I, I would go – farther about what's uh what's good about it i think the acting is very good that is to say the actors doing their job as kind of performing truthfully 
given the circumstances that they're given without uh, any particular judgment of the circumstances that you're given, which is not a luxury that you're afforded as an actor, right? You can't, uh, you see it all the time and it's, it's uh, terrible. It's bad craft when you see the actor uh, commenting on the circumstances, rolling their eyes or, or something like that. They don't do any of that. They commit to it and uh, they are um, sort of to, to the extent that it's possible in a fantastical situation like this, truthful uh, about their interactions with one another and the, the sort of the actions they perform. The other thing is that there is a, there's a good tone. Um, there's a good aspect of, of uh, foreboding or, you know, it, it sort of works in a, in a way of kind of creating an atmosphere that seems compelling moment to moment. I think like like Ben says when you pause to reflect at whether that atmosphere is earned or not uh yes then then there's kind of a there's kind of a disconnect but in the actual I mean in the actual experience of it this is by the way uh, the complaint that you had about arrival which was that uh once you realized what the stakes were uh in in the moment, in some of those very tense moments early in the film, you realize that they shouldn't have been so tense. Um, but uh, at at the time that you're experiencing them, the tension is executed in a way that is that is compelling. And I felt that way about the uh, I felt that way about the OA as well. So like it's not yeah it, again it's not to deny it its virtues. I mean the way on overthinking it is not really to say whether it's good or bad. It's to sort of analyze how it works. And that is, for what it's worth, uh, an aspect of it um, that works well. It's also, uh, you know, a photographed uh, well at moments. It's very beautiful. Um, it's nice, uh, you know, it's nice to look at. Uh, and uh, and that's, that's not nothing, right? Yeah, yeah, no, not at all. I think that I would have appreciated more tonal variation or just some breaks right so when they're teaching you how to write prose for example you get taught don't make all your sentences the same length make some of the sentences longer make some short sentences right you want to vary it so that the rhythm doesn't get too static right and doesn't doesn't start feeling flat doesn't disengage the reader and and i was thinking you know the show the story would be a lot more watchable for me if there were moments in which the sort of sense of foreboding intention escalated or de-escalated more than it does. Whereas Indeed. now it's just constant, right? And the structure of a story within a story frequently lends itself to that because right. in most stories within a story, one the two worlds are very different. And so you right. get like Princess Bride is a great example of this where you get the sword and, the sword and sandal fantasy, like kind of fun, loose comedy and then you get the little breaks of the scenes between the grandpa and his grandson, grandson. And that's right, like right, a, right. a break in tone. Yeah. Uh, between but then the I realized that if they did that, they wouldn't be the OA, right? Because I feel like the most characteristic <laughs> thing about the show is, well, A, so the thing about the arrival is I didn't I didn't quite see that as bad about the arrival, right? Because with the arrival, it was sort of a feature that was part of the story that that failing to that not understanding, not understanding what was happening or not understanding what was at risk, ended up being a big thematic issue in The Arrival, and I won't go any more into that. And in this one, OA, Prairie, makes the point that flowing between different realities 
is not going to feel like going through a portal or having some sort of big, huge, uh, you know, like sliders moment, right? Where I mean, she, she didn't say, hey, do you remember that Jerry O'Connell show sliders with Sabrina Lloyd and John Rice Davies? Like, that was pretty great. You remember that show? It's not going to be like that, right? Like, she didn't say that in the show uh, because that would have been a break in tone. Uh, but she could have said it very seriously. She'd be like, it's like sliders, the show that I watched with my father. In the 90s. No, um, it's that, oh, it's going to seamlessly, all of a sudden, a bunch of things are going to start happening quickly, and you're going to realize that you've jumped into a different uh, dimension, right? A different sort of multiple reality dimension. And so, okay, I get that in, in the OA, we have constant tension, right? And we have constant foreboding, and we have this sort of preciousness about everything with the lens flares and the washed out photography. Um, and, and the sort of the hand cam, right? It's all supposed to be very intimate and very precious and very vulnerable and very intense. And it's supposed to be kind of relentless and not really change all that much. It's supposed to get quiet or loud, but other than that, it doesn't really modulate. And you're gonna pass between realities without feeling a, a, a change, without feeling like sort of a shift, without feeling, although the, they belied that themselves several times by having crazy visual effects from right out of sliders show up on the screen and be like, whoosh, whoosh, right? She's like, no, walking from one dimension to another isn't like going to another dimension, except that time I opened a door and ended up into a cube full of galaxies, but that's a whole other thing entirely. Um, <laughs> but the point is that the OA is at its most OA-ish when it is doing those two things. And... The, the 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 improvement, if I were to make more OA, the improvement I would make is I would change the way that they talk about mundane things. Because the way that they talk about mundane things starts feeling so ungrounded, because they have to do it in the style of the show. But it feels so ungrounded from my frame of reference from those everyday things. And it, because it feels so similar to everything else that's happening, I don't feel permitted to think that it's strange, Right. Like, I don't feel like the show wants me or is going to let me think, you know, it's kind of odd that she's so manic about finding the Wi-Fi password. Or like, yeah, you know, maybe if I were really stressed out and the phone rang, I wouldn't knock it off the wall, right? Like, maybe that feels a little bit like high school drama, you know, or like a college playwriting class, but right? That, so, I'm so angry. Yeah, one particular place where, where I think we can throw this into relief, throw this phenomenon uh, into relief is the multiple appearances of Costco in the, uh, <laughs> in the OA and shopping in Costco in a real, what seems like a real Costco with the signs that are, you know, have the correct fonts and have the correct uh, prices on them. Some of them ending in 99, others ending in 97, depending on whether the thing is on clearance or not. And like, uh, you know, but um, the Costco is not a deflating uh, deflating move, right? Like the Costco is where she finds the wolf sweatshirt. <laughs> and right, like Costco as a place of, you know, let's pick up the milk, let's pick up some milk or let's get, you know, I don't know, a, a two liter thing of bullet bourbon or something um, versus Costco as the place of the wolf sweatshirt. <laughs> Right. Uh, perfectly illustrates the kind of uh, problem that you're talking about. Right. And also, I don't know if the show sufficiently addressed that you could pass back and forth between member and non-member dimensions while shopping at Costco. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> right. But well, yes, exactly. But if yeah. you like, I've I've gone into a Costco a number of times when my membership card has expired and I haven't paid yet. You pay at the register to renew your membership. So for the time that you're in the Costco before you've paid to renew your membership, you're in the Costco as a non-member, right? And so that dimensional shift, this like profound ontological shift, happens to you uh, at a certain point. But there's a there's a, a time before that when you are a non-member inside the Costco, which is supposed to be uh, a particular thing. Um, so you pick so up the, a bird, you so shove it in your mouth. Movement, the first movement is when you find your parking spot. Right. The <laughs> second movement is when you get your, your cart at the front. The third uh-huh. movement is when you just kind of like tell the guy at the front, no, no, I, I can find everything on my own. It's okay. Uh, and then the fourth movement is where you get your stuff. And then the fifth movement. Don't is tell them what the fifth buy. movement is. They can't know. Wait, what is it, Ben? It's, it's where point. you buy. It's where you buy your Costco membership at the end. That's how oh. you get to the next dimension. That's what it was the whole time. <laughs> but here's here's the other thing is that this is a show that seems concerned with like Dharma and like cosmic truth. Right. And it's concerned with kind of stripping away the things that society makes us feel and think about ourselves. And yet there's a scene in a parking lot where they're standing in front of a giant Applebee's neon sign. And like and like it's there. There's like a giant neon Applebee's sign. And 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 I can't really I can't really deal with a show that is willing to treat the presence of the giant neon Applebee sign with the same level of reverence and seriousness as it wants me to treat kind of like let's meet in a stripped down house with no walls. Right. Like we have to leave behind. Is not teaching about helping children and not about your the things that your boss tells you to do? Right. Like uh, you would think that there would be some more rebellion Within the show, I think I think what it might be is that the show seems to condemn a fair amount about contemporary living, except when it doesn't like. Right. It's like it it sucks. It's bad when other people live in a contemporary way. But when we do it, it's fine. And it it shares the same level of seriousness as all the things that we elevate above this sort of sense of bourgeois contemporary living. And I'm not against categorically condemning bourgeois contemporary living. It just seemed like there was an internal inconsistency between what you're choosing to see as sort of grave and important and what, but then of course that's what it's about, right? It's so uh, so what you're saying is that the OA treats Applebee's with a level of seriousness. (laughs) (laughs) I am not done yet. I am not done. There's a, uh, an analog to this in Hap's, um, Curiously well-funded research that he does. <laughs> right. The, the idea is that the this would never get through an IRB, right? This would never uh, be allowed to happen in contemporary science. And so contemporary science is insufficient. And whatever the reality status of the flashback is, it's part of the narrative. And, so, and, and it's... Uh, a very big part, too big a part, frankly, right? Like, I I honestly, like, I wanted more mystical stuff. Like, if you're going to present a, a, a mystical critique of contemporary society, I'm on board for that. But do your mystical critique of contemporary society, right? Like, and it's, it's if she's a, a, an invincible, you know, immortal comeback from the dead person who travels through dimensions, then it's more or less a superhero show. And I'm down with that. Like, I like superhero shows. I like superhero movies. I think they you can do a lot of interesting stuff in that format. But um, 
if it's about kind of the mundane realities of captivity and like the automatic dog food dispenser grinding uh, at the same time every day, like that's a show I don't want to watch, right? Like I, I don't get pleasure out of watching that. I don't really see why I should be interested in, compelled by, excited by uh, anything like that. So my... My whole thing was like, uh, oh, are we going to be in the glass room or are we going to be in the room of galaxies? Because I would like to spend more time in the room of galaxies. And to me, it was a, a creative shortcoming that we couldn't find more time, uh, more ways to spend more time in the room of galaxies and sort of make that uh, as, a, as a critique on the show. But uh, with Hap, the critique of... The critique of the scientific establishment is, I think, uh, rhymes, I should say, with the critique that you're pointing out of contemporary living, right? And it, it, uh, uh, the scientific establishment is bad except when it isn't, right? Like the, the scientific method is bad except when it isn't. Scientific community is bad uh, except when we have a colleague who's doing similar experiments in New York and somehow manages to do them um, in, a, in, a ho- in an actual hospital in the city rather than in, in an abandoned mine, you know, um, five hour, a five-hour plane ride outside of New York City. The... Uh, there there is this weird sort of um there is this weird almost post truth uh sentiment to it right that you have what? to you have to you can't rely on institutions the institutions are corrupt or lying or you know uh committing malfeasance of some some sort or another you have to you have to sort of do do it yourself the only proof you'll believe is the proof of your own uh the proof of your own eyes you have to you know i don't know you you have to kind of dox everything right like uh, and and that well, I, I think, yeah i think that's right to put your finger on kind of the post truth nature of this because this is one of those stories where anybody who doubts the oa is kind of presented as a bad guy like her her parents to some extent or maybe not bad guys they but they medicated me yeah like the, everybody who thinks she's crazy or lying or whatever is treated as they're they're they have bad intentions and we should you know boo you know the OA is going to save us all, uh, but without really any justification because there's not really any evidence. And then of course at the end we get the rug pulled out that maybe they were right all along that she really is crazy. But either way, even if she's right, uh, it sort of reminds me of like movies where the scientist runs in with like his hair all jumbled and is like you you got to listen to me the world's going to end, but he doesn't really present any evidence. He just kind of screams at everybody. Right, right. Uh, or alternatively, uh, what I've been given to understand is the plot of the movie Sully, where like the <laughs> N- where the NTSB is like the bad guys for investigating why the plane crashed in the river, and it's like, why are you questioning Sully? And then it's like, well, it's their job, and the NTSB like does good work preventing future plane accidents. And it's kind of, like maybe they're just doing their job. Right, right, right. And, you know, it, you, the biggest example of this, and this this is a combination of a whole bunch of of the different uh, junctures on which the uh, part of why the show might be notable, particularly, is that it's it's not like other shows, right? And it's like, oh, I I resist categorization. I don't like things that that make uh, clear definitions about people. I like to sort of live in these ambiguous places. And shows in general are too clear about who the characters are and what's happening for my particular taste, right? There's something about the show that is that is different from other shows, right? And the big example for me was the FBI, 
right? Because the whole beginning of the show, it's like, oh, the FBI is calling. Oh, we can't talk. To, we don't want to talk to the FBI. I don't want to deal with the FBI. I really, really don't want to go there. And the parents are like, oh, you know, I mean, she kind of has to. We're going to get in trouble if we don't. But you know what? Our first obligation is to her. And she's pretty badly traumatized. So let's try to stall and like not have her have to talk to the FBI. And then eventually she goes to the FBI and it turns out that they're not even conducting an investigation, it seems, right? Like they just want to provide her with like victim services is the main reason she goes to the FBI, right? And it's like, no, I'm just here to see you're being taken care of and I'm a therapist and these meetings are, are, are sort of court, court appointed, but you can not come if you don't want to. And all the tension of why we were supposed to be afraid of the FBI in the first place is just gone, right? Are we? Is that a relief? Is that is it supposed to feel like a relief, or is it supposed to feel kind of like a betrayal? Are we supposed to have learned something, right? Uh, or is it other... is it really the FBI at that yeah. later right at that later yeah. point? Is it really the FBI? He's uh, you know what is Are you he doing? A crazy person might be making up that the government is watching them. <laughs> like why would they do that? <laughs> um, that like what is he doing in the house? Uh, what is he doing in the house at the end? Yeah, there there are a bunch of, I mean, there are a bunch of institutions, and the uh, the uh, I think the scientific establishment is one. I think the family, the sort of the nuclear family, is one. I think high school is one. Uh, I think the FBI is one. Though though you're right that it does kind of shift um, in this odd way. I think the Olive Garden is one. <laughs> right? We're at the Olive Garden. <laughs> that like uh well uh, right like it's they name check the olive garden and then it's the applebee sign that's in the background i don't uh you know i <laughs> again i suppose it's a it's uh a... there are multiple demand at some point a butterfly flapped its wings and someone decided not to build a chevy's fresh mex in that strip mall and it became an applebee's and then another butterfly in another part of which uh, flapped its wings and it became a flying aircraft carrier but then another butterfly flapped its wings really fast and it became an olive garden so there, like there's, the a, world... there's a deleted scene where they went to the olive garden and the wait was too long and they're like well we can just go across the street to the Applebee's. <laughs> they go to the applebee's it's different scenes i think it's in different episodes they have different chain restaurants that they go to but how about this how about just on a basic level steve I, I never got over steve steve the parkour guy i've been using a very rude name for him that i won't repeat on the podcast uh steve the parkour boy right uh he knows parkour first thing you see in the show is from steve is that he's doing a crazy parkour stunt on the roof eight episodes of the show later how much additional parkour has been in the show uh spoiler alert zero parkours there have been by whatever unit of discrete parkour you might measure there have been zero subsequent parkours that have happened in this show and 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 i feel personally offended because i kind of feel like putting parkour in a show like this is a tip of the hat to people who might not like some of the other things that are in this show and it's like well you know you kind of want to set a wide net you really that not all your audience wants the same thing so like if we're gonna put a parkour guy on the show let's at least have like one episode where he has to do parkour there's right? also a i mean yeah exactly and there, there's a contract i think in storytelling which is that in order to be a story and not not a shaggy dog tail right like you, you in order to be a real narrative you have to omit details that don't matter at all Right. right. And, and yes, OK, what you're saying, well, you know, two or three defining characteristics, you know, 
this is a bad way to, uh, you know, this is a bad way to do storytelling. It's too rote. It's too formulaic and stuff like that. Hey, maybe he just does parkour some nights and doesn't ever do parkour again. But like, look, you make you're always making choices, right? Like this sort of this is an exercise in, in question begging to say that, you know, well, I'm not responsible for what the camera captures. I mean, yes, of course you are. Like you pointed the camera at the actors and told them what to do. So, so well, I mean, this the- this is a deeper problem in the show is it makes a whole bunch of promises it can't cash out. But right. I, mean, I think that's the deepest satis- dissatisfaction with the show is there's a whole bunch of promises. What it it may, even a whole bunch of stuff you might not want to be fulfilled. Like one of those promises is there will be lots of explicit sex on this show because the other <laughs> the first thing we get from Steve is this like really pretty graphic sex scene. Yep. Which, you know, if that's your thing, great. Or if it's not, like I was talking to someone who doesn't really like that in their fiction and they hit, that had turned them off the show. And I was like, okay, don't worry. There's, there's no more. <laughs> I can imagine, somebody, I can imagine there's like one other scene. There's like yeah, maybe two other scenes, like somebody else watching it and be like, oh man, this is gonna be like game of Thrones. Great. <laughs> <laughs> like, so Steve, Steve meets the girl at the end and is like, Hey, I do parkour. You do computers. We could have something in common. This leads me to think that the parkour is going to be important. What's up? We can start in a 90s hacker movie together. (laughs) And then there's the scene where he gets captured by the dudes with a van and has to make an escape attempt. Do you know what parkour is made for? It's made for escape attempts for dudes with vans. (laughs) It's like, oh, man, I got to run. And then there's a building and I've got to go over the fence. Right. And this guy's a van. He's not a police officer. So I could conceivably evade him. Sorry. I'm very caught up on the parkour. And then, then, by the way, when he comes back home, there's like zero consequence for this thing (laughs) that this thing that is supposed to have happened. Right. Like they they get other guys. If the if the first guys just effed off with their cashier's check for fifty thousand dollars or whatever. They get other guys with another van to cut. Like vans are an unlimited now, renewable resource. Now, get me. Correct me if I'm wrong. Cashier's <laughs> checks aren't transferable, right? That's they are. The point yeah, they're thing. they're transferable. Cashier's oh, checks are? are like are like cash. Oh, so you can sign them over to somebody else. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay, fair enough. Because I, I only have ever gotten a cashier's check that's made explicitly out, specifically to a car dealership. Uh, but I guess I could sign those over to somebody. Oh, mine. Yeah, mine. Paid. Mine was a landlord. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I actually put the down payment on my car on a credit card for the frequent flyer miles. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, and and the problem the problem right with making promises that you don't keep is that when you keep or or making promises and only keeping certain ones is that when you don't keep the awesome promises and you keep all the promises that suck right that's a recipe for people not feeling great about your television show right right and yet people still like the show there are people who like the show but the big thing i've been hearing about the show is that the ending is a doozy. Yeah, we got to potentially. We, we got to talk the whole about the rest of it. Very silly. We got to talk about the ending, and we got to talk about the. Uh, uh, we got to talk about the ending. And we got to talk about whether it was all a dream or whether it was all all made up and not. So let's let's do the uh, let's do those. Uh, the ending. I don't know what was your what was your read, Pete. I mean, the, I I feel like that if you see this as a critique of toxic masculinity, you see the ending where uh, the. Um, 
the movements, the five movements uh, performed with perfect feeling seem to thwart a school shooting, uh, either with mystical power or else by just distracting the school shooter who says, (laughs) what the hell are you you people doing Uh, until someone can can tackle him? Um, That that you would see this as an example of the kind of toxic masculinity that, that it is part of the show's artistic purpose to critique. Certainly the fact that it is a male cook who tackles the guy would indicate that. Wearing a hairnet, right, no less, would indicate that we're really asking for men to change the role that they play uh, in violence with regards to violence and coercion in society. Uh, Fewer shooters, more lunch ladies that are men. You could be a lady and and still a lunch man. Look, it's not a lunch man. Look, it's he's just serving kids lunch. No, yeah, it's that could be this. This this whole thing about. You know, the sort of is is the whole is the story that matters the story of the teenagers is kind of the question that's posed at the end, right? Like, has all this stuff about the OA and the kidnapping, is it all sort of about the education system? Is this a we don't need no education, we don't need no vaccination kind of show, right? Where it's like, we don't need people to tell us what's right. We know what's right, right? Uh, in our hearts, you know, by by feeling the universe, and that way we'll follow our consciences. Well, this, I mean, we yeah, this yeah. is the post truth. This is the post truth reading uh, yeah. of it, right? Like it's the sort of it's the sort of hyper tailored consumer uh, experience um, version of it. But but uh, continue continue your thought. Don't let me derail you yet. No, no. I mean, it's also interesting to think that if the movements work the way in which the OA describes them. They don't actually thwart the school shooting. They merely move the frame of reference of the show into a reality wherein the school shooting did not happen, right? Because otherwise, the school shooting, the school shooting still happened in its own universe, right? All they did was move themselves out of the universe that was having the school shooting. But I don't know if the show is really treating it that rigorously, which is strange because it explained it so much. Um, I mean, Ben, what did you think about, about this about this ending? I mean, it, the the deepest problem I had was that this is kind of the opposite of the zero parkours in that it's a a, a an alert. A, the parkour is put at the beginning as a promise that doesn't pay off. Right. This for me, I think you're being very generous. Talking about, <laughs> talking about, oh, this is a theme of toxic masculinity. And then the shooter comes in because we don't know the first thing about this shooter. We don't even know if he's a student. I mean, I think right. it's implied that he's a student. But we have no idea what the motives of this school shooter is uh, because it comes out of literally nowhere. I mean, I know there's Eddie Vedder because they've been murdering Pearl Jam the whole season for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) And so that that was, to me, the deepest problem was just that it it, you need some foreshadowing. If you're going to pull something, you're going to really pull any kind of big twist like this. This is the sort of show where you kind of expect there to have been some breadcrumbs laid along the way. Uh, that that turns out, oh, OK, now I can go back and, and watch and appreciate all the little subtle references they had to this, like, disturbed friend they had or something like that. He was like that, carrying uh, an AR-15. He wasn't even carrying an, a, a Russian gun, right, which you would think he would because of the Russian for, foreshadowing. Anyway, Matt, I interrupted. But the, the, uh, it, like that public service announcement, uh, that, that PSA uh, YouTube video where the, the – well, spoiler alert. I'm, I'm going to put this in the show notes. So a, a school gun violence public service announcement recently where uh, you're focused on – it seems to tell the story of a, a teenage uh, love affair and like asking out to prom and in fact kind of in 
marginalized and in the back of the frame um, as, you know, marginalized and in the back of, of the, the high school society, uh, the high school social caste system, uh, is someone gradually getting more alienated and disaffected uh, and showing a lot of warning signs um, that, I guess correlate with with uh, being a school shooter. So uh, I'll pu- I'll put this P- PSA in, and the, the whole point there is the evidence was in front of your your eyes uh, the whole time. You you just you just didn't see it. Um, but this seems like cheap stakes, right? right. Uh, the the uh, American American History X is another good example of this, where there's an early fight between uh, the white kind of one, one of the protagonists and a black schoolmate. And then kind of throughout the movie, he, he learns a lot and becomes a better person. But then the previous fight pays dividends and it turns out he gets shot in school. And that's the big, big climax of the movie. Uh, but that's earned because there's this incident at the beginning of the movie that you think means one thing. And in reality, it, it kind of meant two things uh, for both sides of the equation. So it, that, that was like a payoff. But this didn't have even a, a semblance of that. Right. Exactly. And, and in the OA, you see evidence, you think it means one thing. And in reality, it means everything and nothing at the same time. Right. Which sounds really profound, but is actually kind of pe- pe- pedestrian. It yeah. reminds this, me of, of remember me. Do you guys remember, remember me live I, in the moments. It was uh, from the heady days when team, when team uh, Edward was riding high on the hog in his post Cedric Diggory era and and it's a Robert Pattinson vehicle, right? Uh, where it's like a love story, but then at the end he dies in nine eleven for no reason. Yeah, exactly. It's a it, yeah. it's a shaggy dog story, right? Like yeah, yeah. You know. And it's and it's in there are certain things that by invoking you have to earn, right? Uh, so like a car accident, for instance, at the end of this, maybe you could get away with mm. because that's relatively mundane. That's the sort of thing that occurs and doesn't have these deep ideological and political and emotional stakes. Yeah. No country uh, but, for old men is trots in that territory. Right. But so yeah. school shooting is not one of those things. You, you can't right. just invoke that willy nilly and make your story turn out to be about school shootings without making your story about school shootings. Yeah. I think, I think a good rule of thumb is that if Gus Van Sant made a movie about it, it can't, <laughs> it can't be a side plot, right? It has to be the main plot. Like there can't oh, just Pete, be a, like, Pete, it's, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. <laughs> like you can't have the last days of of uh, what is it of Kurt Cobain or whatever. Or you can't have uh, 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 Harvey Milk running for Congress be like the C plot of your story, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> it has to be at least a B plot. If like finding, if like if the OA actually you could do it with Finding Forrester. If the OA, if there was just like Sean Connery just lived in a building and gave people advice on how to read novels, like that could be a potential side plot in the OA without further explanation. I think it would fit right in. Um, I mean, can I can I can I give my 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 theory, my my OA theory oh, at I, this point? Does it does it uh, touch on whether it was all real or not? Yes, yes, yeah. it's about there, whether it's all real. Yeah, because I I feel like we have to we can't close until we've addressed that. Yeah, because the big event right is that Alfonso investigates the house. And he finds a bunch of items in the house that correspond to the elements of Prairie's story. And he infers from this and concludes from it that Prairie has been, I mean, I don't want to say Kaiser Sosaying, but Kaiser Sosaying the situation, that 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 she's been making up uh, details, that she's been imagining and fantasizing and making up these details from everyday objects that are like around her house and in her life. Um, and for me... What this signified, and now you could say, well, maybe she just passed through another dimension and Homer became a copy of Fagel's Iliad, 
right? Like, uh, or was it the Odyssey? It was the Iliad, right? I think it was the Iliad that was under the bed. It was Fagel's Iliad. Um, maybe that, like, oh, no, there was a reality where it existed, and now it doesn't exist. But the thing that really sticks out to me, and particularly with the name OA, which is left deliberately ambiguous and is is identified as original angel to somewhat unsatisfying effect later on. But to me, what the OA is, is it's is it's a skin. It's a mask over the OZ, right? Which is that that the, that where this is really a Wizard of Oz story. The OA is the OZ, and uh, Prairie is a, a modern day Dorothy who's kind of caught up in. And remember, in in uh, Return to Oz, Dorothy's in a mental institution and is being getting electroshock therapy, right? And like that's one of the things that kind of transports her to Oz, uh, and that and that what she's done is she's built this there's this elaborate alternative fantasy reality that's built from like. Uncle Henry and like, oh, it's the guy on the bike or the woman on the bike and the guy with the with the crazy tinker shop is the wizard. Right. And like all of these things that she's seen in her everyday life in this sort of transformation into a fantasy experience become the accoutrement of her fantasy adventure. And the fantasy adventure gets to feel like it has real stakes uh, in The Wizard of Oz because there's there's at least a moment of transition where we're given to introduce the we're, we are we are able to go over the rainbow to the somewhere over the rainbow and as such experience it as its own place on its own terms whereas in the OA there is no rainbow because the color palette is too muted right so you can't go over the rainbow you have to stay where you are uh, and and it doesn't it doesn't give the sense of transference between the Oz that is uh, Prairie and her home companions right and then the uh, the non Oz the Kansas that is like the high school and Prairie going to the FBI and all that other kinds of stuff because that was my interpretation of it I don't know did you guys have a different feeling about the levels of reality and how it all fit together I mean. Uh... I want to talk, not, not necessarily on that on that on that level. I mean the the or if you could talk about that, you could talk about Oz. Do you yeah, see this as a Wizard of Oz story? Well, a, a little you... bit. Like the the idea of the idea of Oz is that there is a place beyond the the sort of dreary and mundane. Um, there's a, a a place beyond the dreary and mundane Kansas setting of the Wizard of Oz, and when when Dorothy comes back, she's actually learned that Oz is within uh, the place that that she's in. That's that's sort of the opposite of what what happens. The uh, domains are kept pretty separate, or the the levels of reality are kept pretty separate, or you know how, however you want you want to see it. Right? Oz doesn't necessarily have a lesson to teach us, and it doesn't express a huge longing, um, right? Because like if it's if it's all made up, it's a it's a sort of compensatory fantasy or a kind of survival fantasy to uh, live through a trauma um, that it, that's not, it doesn't necessarily reflect a, uh, it doesn't necessarily reflect something that's been established early on in the beginning of the, the uh, show as, as Prairie's longing for, to go to, um, to go to a different place. That would be yeah. like uh, that for me, that reading would require like going back to Russia or something like that, because the kind of the family romance element, the, the Anastasia story element of like, no, I'm not, I'm a, I'm the daughter of a Russian oligarch. I'm not a, this dreary mundane uh, Midwestern person um, 
who you see here in the, you know, the sort of failed subdivision housing development uh, here. I'm actually a, a, a modern day princess. Like that is what would be required to to kind of make it an Oz story, to make it a kind of fantastical place that that fulfills some sort of psychological need. Mm. Although she does with regards to other things from Oz. The the movements, right? Like what gets Dorothy back from Oz other than a movement done with perfect feeling, right? That that she carries with her all the time, that she knows that, that she's had the whole time, right? Uh, that yeah, she, I suppose that she, I, I, the difference between the OA and the OZ is that Dorothy says uh, there's no place like home. Um, and the message of the OA is more that there's no such place as home. Mm. I thought you were going to say well, the, that Dorothy says there's no place like home and Prairie says raptor clap clap step right uh, which is a little bit different but I don't know Ben I interrupted well, the, my... the important di- I think one important difference is that well there's, there's kind of two that I'm thinking of that, are, that I think are somewhat related the first is that Dorothy returns home from Oz because she she kind of learns that it's it's right to return home uh, but other than that, she is unchanged. Uh, she is essentially the same good-hearted Dorothy. She has just learned a valuable lesson, like a, a returned home with a valuable lesson. Uh, whereas something has happened to Prairie, and she is deeply changed by it. Uh, both obviously, in the obvious sense of her sight is restored, uh, which means something happened. Like that just didn't. Ha- she, she wasn't magically cured all by herself. Like something happened while she was gone. Whether it's the, the whole thing with the five cells and Homer and all that stuff is, is a different question. Uh, but then the other difference is Oz has two levels of reality. And here we have a story where we're given to believe that there's at least sort of three uh, in the right. sense that there is the the mundane world of the high school. There is the story world of OA in her, her prison cell. And then there's wherever this other level is that we're led to believe Homer and Hap and all the other captives went uh, now that they have the fifth movement. And yeah, then like, OA may be on her way to uh, when she's shot, that there's like this third level of reality that's like a somehow truer or more uh, closer to God, I guess, than the, than the levels of reality we've seen before. Like the Rainbow Road, the the, the greatest Mario Kart level is like the <laughs> transcendent state. Yeah. And uh, so to, to wrap up what we've been to kind of connect some of the stuff we were talking about promises and storytelling and this question of. Uh, is this real? There's one Im- detail that I think is important uh, to discuss, which is it's the Wi-Fi scene, because that's a scene where OA is alone uh, with only her and the camera and is acting as if the story is real mm-hmm. because she gets online. She looks up Homer. She finds a video of a real person uh, and, and is like whispering Homer to herself. Uh, so we're either being lied to as an audience by the camera or it's real. I think you're I think you're asking for a level of fidelity and uh, being thought through that the show <laughs> has not necessarily evinced in <laughs> in other respects. So like yes, absolutely. I I take your point and I think that is great evidence for uh for what you're saying that at least she believes that uh at least she believes that it's real and she's not totally Kaiser Sozaying them. There's, you know, there's the strong Kaiser Soze and the weak Kaiser Soze, you know. Uh, this, this criticism has been leveled at a movie like Frozen, where Prince Hans, spoiler alert, it turns out is a bad guy. But in early scenes of the movie, when he's not being observed, he acts like a good guy. 
Uh, and, and that, you know, it's, it's kind of a trick to the audience because it, there's no way we could have known that we were being lied to in that way. Right. Um, a sort of reverse Beauty and the Beast kind of scenario, you know, uh, where, where exactly. <laughs> the beast acts, acts like a beast. Uh, another critique of toxic masculinity um, for what it's worth. Uh, Pete, you have a final thought before I uh, bring our proceedings to an end, before I blow out the candles up here in yes. the, the attic room of this vacant house. Yes. The, for me, the, the Downton Abbey moment on top of all this that pulled a lot of it together was when the mom and dad, they get in the argument because Prairie left a note when she fled home. And the mom never told the dad about it, presumably because she thought it was going to be too upsetting and she thought the Prairie leaving was her fault. And the dad finds out and he's upset reasonably. And he decides that he's going to go to the hotel lobby and he's going to make uh, breakfast because a good thing to do, this is good advice. If you are upset in a relationship about some sort of long-term problem, it's often a good time to, to kind of like think about it, make sure that your immediate needs are taken care of in terms of food and sleep before flying off the handle about it with somebody. So he goes to the hotel lobby and, and he's going to sort of put create a little space. And she follows him down there and she meets him at the waffle bar. And he says, Nance... I'm making a waffle and I'm going to eat it. Right. And he says these things. He tells these things to us. He doesn't show these things to us. And I and I kept thinking that for waffles are great. I love waffles. Waffles are delicious. And as far as I'm concerned, the waffle is one of the realest things that's shown up in this episode of the show. And I think, why is the show so disinterested in showing me the waffle? Right. Like we don't show the waffle. We don't get the shot of the waffle with the maple syrup on it. We don't get the smell off the waffle. We don't see whether it's a good waffle or a bad waffle, because believe it or not, the world is not perfect, even in 2017. And there are waffles that turn out poorly. Right. Not everything is golden brown and crispy all the time. Sometimes it's a little soggy, especially in hotels. But but the thing is that the experience of eating this waffle in this moment of intense personal revelation and reflection that's something okay i'm up for that i'm interested in that i would love to see what that's like that lends a grounded sense of reality or even a sense of suspended fantasy there's so much you could do with that waffle and i just wish that the oa was the kind of show that that it has a static spanish guitar and it has waffles and and it has this democratizing message that it tells you to your face. But I just wish uh, that 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 we could we could with all my complaints about not ta- not getting uh, distracted by corporate branding and all that stuff. I just I just wish that there were a sort of sensual sensory memory experience such that I could share that waffle with that man in that moment. And, and maybe that's not asking the OA to be something other than what it is, but to be more of what it is. Or maybe it's me uh, expressing something. Uh, because let me tell you, if there's ever been a time in my life where I've had p- truly perfect feeling, good chance I was eating a waffle at the time. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to leave our discussion of the OA there for the week. Uh, if you wanted to jump in, the perfect place to do that is the comments on the show notes for this episode. Go to overthinking.com, uh, click on the title of this episode, and you'll find some uh, show notes there, as well uh, as a pretty a pretty downer uh, gun violence PSA. But it's worth uh, it's worth looking at just 
as a comparison kind of text to how you tell the story uh, that the OA is telling in a way that that feels earned as opposed to feeling totally out of left field. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks very much to Ben and Pete uh, for joining me on the podcast. I'm Matt Rather. We'll be back with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Jeremy spoken in class away. <laughs> Jeremy spoken. Wait, how did they pick that? That song is too perfect. I'm sorry. I, I, how did they not pick that song? How did they not pick that song? I was going to say elderly woman behind a counter in a small town. But if you're going to make a Pearl Jam song in a show about school shootings and it's got to rhyme with away, how do you not do it? I don't understand. I don't understand. Mm.